Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. The U.S. Open is just about upon us. In fact, as we were coming on air, Mats Vlander, you're leaving later this week. Johnny Levine, you're going to New York as well. And uh, we are joined, of course, by the great Mats Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, International Tennis Hall of Famer. You name it, he's done it. Johnny Levine, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American. He's just a few weeks out from being inducted into the Texas Longhorn Hall of Honor. We've got lots to talk about. We've gone through a fair amount of the hardcourt season already, guys. Started with Atlanta, worked its way through Washington and Canada. Now they're in Winston-Salem. But let's go back, Matt Vlander, to Cincinnati, where Borna Chorich is born again. We watched it together when he beat Rafael Nadal, and he parlayed that early round upset into a tournament win. Where has Borna Chorich been, and how did he do this? Yeah, Andy, nice to be with you guys. Johnny as well, of course. Um, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Borna Chorich a few years back was one of the more, more promising young players. He was coached by uh, Thomas Johansson a Swede who won the Australian Open, and uh, I should know the year, but I like to say 2000 maybe. And uh, Thomas always told me that, that Borna Courage actually wanted it too badly, that he was a little bit too intense. And as a young kid, they might have worked against him a little bit, although he did have a good, a good young career. But I think now he's figured that out. He's obviously had um, fought a lot of injuries in the last couple of years. Uh, but I feel like he's... Talent-wise, he's most probably a top top 20 player consistently if he's healthy. And uh, he's still got an unbelievably good attitude, and that, that, that doesn't seem to change. But to assume or to guess that he is going to win Cincinnati uh, and beat the players that he beat, I mean, there's no chance that I thought that he was good enough to beat someone like Cam Norrie in the semis. Or, of course, Stefano Tsitsipas. Rafa Nadal, no, of course not. But you never know with Nadal. Uh, first hardcourt match. But still, I don't know. I mean, it just tells me that on hardcourts, everybody feels comfortable these days. Both on the men's side and the women's side. And uh, Andy, I don't know if you told me, but th- there's a statistic or a, another player. And it's Mikael Pernfors, who was also a player who won a challenger in 1993 and... He won the Canadian Open. And Borna Chorich has won a challenger this year. And he wins a ATP 1000 event. I mean, that just says it all about uh, the level that they have on the challenge tour. And, of course, you, Johnny, know that better than anyone. So, I mean, that's got to make you, Johnny, like, holy smokes, realize that these guys are so good and they're so close to the best players in the world. And that is a big change in professional, uh, especially in men's tennis. That was not the case 10, 15 years ago. These guys that go to Arizona do seem to get a little bit of a bump. We saw it happen for Berrettini in 2019. We saw it happen for Dennis Kudla this year. And uh, 
And Johnny, you like to keep up with these Americans. Now, Taylor Fritz did not come through Arizona, but he has a guy, he is a guy rather, that you have attached your hopes to uh, with this U.S. Open. And we were cheated out of the Taylor Fritz, Nick Kyrgios semi at Wimbledon, but we got the Taylor Fritz, Nick Kyrgios matchup in Cincinnati. And it went by way of Taylor Fritz convincingly 6-3-6-2. So Fritz beats Kyrgios. He backs that up with a win over Rublev. Didn't have enough left in the tank to get by Medvedev in Cincinnati. We were a little concerned when he walked off the court against Daniel Evans the week before that there could be some potential for, for a lingering injury there. But it looks like Fritz, for all the world, is primed and ready to make a run at the U.S. Open. Yeah, I think you're right, Andy. I think Fritz is playing the best tennis of his life. Um, you know, I, I am surprised, though, that he lost uh, earlier to uh, Dan Evans. But, you know, he's he's had a great summer. He's playing great tennis. Um, uh, they showed him today warm, working out with uh, Nadal. And Nadal, you know, af, was, was interviewed after it and said that uh, Fritz is as good as it gets. And so he's got to be a favorite to get to the second week for sure. Um, and he's probably the best U.S. hope we have right now. And, and I think he's really coming into his own. I think very, very soon you'll see him in the top 10, and then it'll just be a matter of whether he can sustain it. He definitely has the game. People know, are used to playing him, and he's still having the great results. So we have a lot to look forward to with, with Taylor Fritz. You made mention, Matt, the name Cam Norrie. He's down a break in the third against Alcaraz in the quarters of Cincinnati. He runs off four straight games and wins that wins that set. What did he do? I mean, obviously we saw him do some amazing defending and retrieving. Is that now going to be the blueprint that you almost have to play Alcaraz the way Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman? Just wait back on the ropes a little bit and then seize the opportunity once you, I don't know, perhaps let this guy punch himself out a little bit. I think you're right, actually. And that's the most worrying uh, thing about Carlos Alcaraz to me is that he controls most of the things um, and he tries to overplay a little bit on big points. Uh, I think you can overplay at certain times, depending on the score. 30 love score, you can overplay. 40-15, you can overplay. But, but it seemed like he overplayed a little bit towards the end of that match. Uh, you know, it scores like 15, 30, 30 all. And I think Cam Norrie, you can't do that. He's not giving you anything for free. So uh, whereas if you watch a Novak Djokovic, for example, play Cam Norrie, which obviously he did at Wimbledon, uh, you can see quite a big difference uh, in the two. And not, not in the beginning, but after, after sort of an hour, Novak Djokovic is nearly like he realizes, okay, so, so Cam, Nor- Cam can't really hurt me. I'm not going to hurt myself. I'm going to stay out here. And not outlast Nori, but kind of outsmart him and play a little bit bigger than him. And, and with Alcaraz, I think if you're quick enough, I think that's the, that's the ticket against Alcaraz. Because if you start counterpunching too much and you're going for a little bit too much, then I think Alcaraz likes that pace. You're then going to start making some mistakes. So I think that if you have the guts, I think it's a good idea to get out there and just tell Alcaraz literally after the warm-up, okay, that's it. I'm giving you zero for the rest of the day, and I'm going to see how mature you are in terms of uh, picking the right sh- the shot selections. And, I- and I'm still holding on, guys, and I know we might have had a little discussion. Of course, um, I've had that with other uh, people. Alex Kurecha, who works for Eurosport, 
where I'm keep saying that I think he overplays. I think he throws in drop shots that that are too risky when you get a little bit nervous. And um, and uh, Alex Correcha and, and even more so Juan Carlos Ferrero, they they kind of like it that he's creative. They like that he takes the racket out of the hand of his opponent. But remind me of any. Uh, uh, any match that Rafa Nadal take, took the racket out of his opponent's hand or Novak Djokovic, they don't do that. They allow them to play and then they make their opponent realize that, listen, you cannot beat me. There is no chance. I'm going nowhere. So I think with Alcaraz, it's still a question mark. Will he ever mature enough tactically? Because certainly, technically, he is maybe the most fun player to watch on tour because it's so unexpected what he does. Definitely between he and Nick Kyrgios. Yes, exactly. I agree. He has a tendency to get a little swept away in the emotion of the moment, which can occasionally affect his... um, He blurs the lines between playing spectacular tennis and winning tennis. And, Matt, you like to make the comment that these pros, it's not about hitting a great shot, it's about hitting the right shot. And maybe you need to have that conversation with Carlos Alcaraz. Before we go to break, Johnny, another guy that's having... At times, spectacular moments on the court, and at times maybe you have to question some of the decisions that he makes, but he's he's clearly on an upward trajectory. And again, that's J.J. Wolf. I bring him up every week, but when we watch him play at Winston-Salem and go out there against Dominic team and go to a third set tiebreak, go down 4-1 in that tiebreak, win five straight points, get to double match point, lose four straight points, and end up ultimately losing to the former U.S. Open champion. What are your thoughts on, on, on the way uh, J.J. is going right now? Hey, Andy, I, I thought J.J. played fantastic yesterday. I mean, that was a really great match. The two match points that he had, he did not lose those points. I mean, team played very, very well on both match points. And he played a style of game yesterday. He was controlling a lot of the points against Dominic team. He had him really tired. I think it was very humid out there. They were both exhausted. They both fought hard. But right now... J.J. Wolf is serving big, and his forehand is huge. It's too bad he couldn't get through that victory yesterday, but I still think that this guy is playing big-time tennis, deserves to be in the top 100, and I expect him uh, within six months, I think he's top 50 guy for sure. He's playing excellent tennis. Okay, guys, let's go to break, but before we do – we, uh, as you started out, Johnny, before we went on air, wishing Matt Vlander uh, a, a happy belated 58th birthday. And we also want to thank you so much, Matt, for making the Colorado swing this past week, spending a few days at the Broadmoor, having a stop over at Cherry Hills Country Club, coming over to Columbine Country Club. We're going to go to break now, but then when we come back, we're going to hear from both Tom Fontana and Weller Evans. We uh, Johnny and I recorded with them a little bit earlier, and we never got around to uh, to getting that one on air. So you're going to hear from those two guys, and then we'll come back to, uh, to, to Matt and Johnny and myself, and we'll get prepared for what we're going to see in New York in a couple of weeks. But don't go away. Happy birthday, Matt. Thanks for coming to Colorado. Fontana and Weller Evans right after this. Sarah Z here with a kick serve quick serve with my friend and nutrition guru Courtney Ward with Body Fuse. Courtney, as we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say, more advanced or more experienced in our life, our fitness levels take a hit if we're not careful, don't they? 
You know, Sarah, they do, unfortunately. And I highly suggest supporting your activities at every stage pre-workout, intra-workout, and post-workout. So you want to think about a pre-workout. We have a product called Endgame, and that basically will allow you to increase your energy and focus during your workout. And then intra-workout is almost just as critical. So we have branched-chain amino acids called BCAA311, and that's a perfect product to allow your body to almost refuel while you're working out. It's a super hydrator as well as a muscle recovery while you're working out. And then finally, protein is critical post-workout and BodyFuse Lean Protein is one of the highest quality proteins on the market. Very, very effective, a slow, long burn, six to eight hours after ingestion and after that workout. So your energy, you're not, you're not going to crash and your energy continues. You're feeding your muscles and you just feel Great. So with these three elements, pre, intra, and post-workout, you're really going to support yourself at all stages in any activities, in intense workouts, tennis matches, body strength conditionings, uh, sessions, etc. Fantastic. And one more time, BodyFuse. BodyFuseUSA.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with BodyFuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the Kickserve Radio Boys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. listening to kickserveradio.com part of tennis channel podcast network as promised we did a kickserve quick serve and we want to go to that where we're going to talk a little bit with tom fontana you'll then hear from weller evans and i think you're going to enjoy both of these guys and then uh, we will be back to myself and matt's and johnny so a kickserve quick serve here we go i've got johnny with us and one of our former teammates, another Longhorn great, Tom Fontana, joining us today. Tom, how are you? Thanks for joining Kickserve Quickserve today. How you guys doing? It's going to be a lot of fun to, to talk to you guys tonight. It always is, Tom. And one of the one of the subjects that you have not really been very shy about over the course of the last ten or so years has been your, you know, to some extent, disappointment with the generation of players that has come up behind Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and their inability to be able to prevent these guys from dominating the slam count the way they have. But now we've started to see a little bit of a changing of the guard as we go into the 2022 U.S. Open. Are you starting to become a little more optimistic about this next generation's chances of being able to maybe steal one of these Grand Slams maybe this year? You know, Z, I, I was, I think, a little while ago, about six months ago, when uh, we were watching Alcaraz and we were watching this rune, this young kid from Denmark, 
and some of these, you know, 18, 19 year old kids. That is, you know, where we've seen the stardom come before from the Agassiz and the Sampras and the Vlanders and the Borgs and everything and the McEnroe's. But now I've seen Alcaraz, you know, settle in now to be in a hell of a player and a hell of a young talent. But, you know, get, lose, losing matches weekly um, to different guys. The, the encouraging part would be, you know, curious the way he played at Wimbledon, the way he followed up with a win in Washington, and even how he played this week beating Medvedev. But if you're asking me point blank, Djokovic's not playing, Nadal's playing, who's going to step up and beat Nadal right now? I would tell you probably no one. The, the one I would probably tell you would be the best shot probably would be Medvedev since he's been there and played those really tough matches and beat Djokovic last year. But I'm not confident right now in three out of five that any of these guys on the tour are going to beat Nadal or Djokovic. Could Taylor Fritz potentially be a guy that with a New York crowd behind him got a little tailwind and maybe took it to a title? I mean, I do think that that of the Americans um, – you know, that he probably has the best shot to go the furthest. I'm not confident in him on a hard court in three out of five against Rafa. He did beat him in Indian Wells when Rafa had a slight injury. He was more of a favorite, in my opinion, at Wimbledon than he would be on hard courts against Rafa. So I'm not going to, I'm saying it's a possibility, but I think it's a 70-30 kind of thing for Rafa. The kid that's in the final now in uh, Toronto, this this, uh, Polish kid, uh, Herzik coach, yeah. is a heck of a player uh, also because of the big serve. I think it's going to take somebody with a serve like Herzik or Kyrgios to beat Nadal. I don't think those are the guys that are going to have the best puncher's chance because they can really hold. And um, so that's what I think it's going to take. I just don't think Zverev's going to come back now off the injury, a team, a rude, um, you know, some of these other guys that are ranked really high, a Tommy Paul, that playing well, you know, I just don't see it happening. And then to throw something in that I forgot to mention was remember Taylor Fritz just lost to Dan Evans two weeks in a row. Now, Tom, it was just announced this week by Serena Williams that she is going to call it quits here, probably after this U S open put into historical perspective, you know, her, her career, as far as what you've seen, having gone to so many U S opens and seeing her play, such great tennis live and just to see that career uh, over the course of the past, you know, two and a half decades. When I think of Serena Williams, my, the first thought that I have is she was the first woman that I ever saw that served like a man. I was always blown away when I watched her play at the open, how, how, how big she hit her serve, how she hit spots, how her second serve was really big and, and she was consistent and a great server in big spots. So that's the first thing that separated her for me from some of the other great players. It's a shame that, it, that she's not going to get to the Margaret Court uh, title, title win of, of winning one or two more. She definitely had, you know, the nerves get to her a little bit late in her career, which a lot of the greats do. And um, they just they know how big the moment is. They know what they're doing, you know, is is history, and they just tighten up in some big spots. And she had some opportunities, unfortunately, over the last three, four years where she tightened up at the wrong time. But her career is 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 23 slams. She could have won almost every doubles title she played. She's just a phenomenal tennis player and a phenomenal athlete. And uh, to me, she's the best I've ever seen. 
Johnny, the fact that we're talking about Serena this and Serena that, it seems almost unfair that we're not talking about the Williams sisters uh, in this regard. And as a result, do you feel that the history books will reflect somewhat unfairly on Venus because of the fact that she stood in such a tall shadow of her younger sister? Yeah, I think so, Andy, Um, because when you look at Venus's career, aside from, you know, Serena and the Margaret Courts and the Chris Everett and Navratilova, she's one of the all-time greats. I mean, you got to put her in the top 10 of of all time. Um, I think she has, uh, you can look it up, I think seven or eight slams, but a lot of Wimbledons won the Open, I think, multiple times. And 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 really, um, you know, she burst on the scene and 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 she had like Tom was talking about Serena's serve. I mean, Venus had a huge serve too, big groundies, was a was a fierce competitor. And, you know, it's remarkable that these two incredible tennis players that are sisters, they're for, over 40 years old and they're still actually playing on the tour, which is just mind boggling. I know it's really coming to an end. But when you talk about longevity um, at, at, a, at the highest level, I mean, that in itself is, is remarkable. Uh, I know Navratilova played a long time, but, but these two are in a class by themselves, in my opinion. And we look at the doubles results of the Williams sisters, 14 for 14 in major finals. Uh, not to mention Venus winning a couple of mixed doubles uh, majors with Justin Gimmelstab, I believe, back in 1998. Tom, last word goes to you, and I feel like I shortchanged you on the intro. I just want to make sure that people know who they're hearing from today because you were one of the top juniors in the country uh, in in the late 70s. You and Johnny came into the University of Texas together as one of the best recruiting classes that we ever had. I think you guys were three and five in the country, and you had a great career uh, staying all four years and playing at Texas and playing number one in your final year there and then giving the Pro Tour a go of it. So tennis has been a part of your entire life, and you've been going to Opens all these years. When you go back this year, who do you have your sights set on? And it's like, there's always that guy. I want to see this guy. And for you, it's not necessarily a household name. There's usually somebody that you've kind of got that people might, you know, have forgotten about or, or overlooked. Is there anybody like that this year that you can't wait to see up, up close and personal? I want to, I, the, the one that I want to see the most is, is I haven't seen Alcaraz up close. Okay. So I've got to see Alcaraz up close. Cause I, I just think he hits the ball so big and moves so big. I have to see him. I really want to see this, Herkaz, I know I don't know pronouncing his name right. I want to see him serve. <laughs> that was better. That was better. You know why? Because his serve is the closest thing I've seen to Sampras. Because the leg bend and the fact that he hits the ball at twelve o'clock or, or or even sometimes or even sometimes eleven o'clock is is unique. Most of the guys are at one o'clock. The huge servers, the curios and stuff. So those two guys I want to see for sure. Um, you know the other the other. You know, guys that that are that are that are knocking on the door a little bit. I, I like Tia Fu as an American. You know, he's really playing well. He could have beat Skirios a week ago. He's four zero in the third against Fritz. He's having some mental issues. Mental issues. We've all been there. So those are the guys that I want to see. Um, and and as far as the women go, you know, I'm interested in seeing the girl who won Wimbledon up close. Um, she just lost, and I'm also interested in seeing um, to see the improvement in, in golf. I want to see what golf looks like this year compared to last year, especially on the forehand side. 
Tom, thanks so much for joining us. When the three of us get together, it's always a lot of fun. I will look forward to seeing you guys at the induction, which I believe is on the 16th, and it's going to include the likes of Kevin Durant and Sam Ocho. So a lot of Longhorn greatness that night, not the least of which is our very own Johnny Levine. So I echo those congratulations. And now we're joined by Weller Evans, who... Uh, is one of the prominent people in our sport, was uh, an ATP tour manager uh, during the 80s. And as he describes himself between 1990 and, and north of the year 2000, was the executive VP of player services, which is kind of a frou-frou title. I will admit that, Weller, and that's your own description of it. But now you're telling me that there's all these tour managers and, and pl- the player services department uh, has grown exponentially, which leads me to my first question with you. Uh, as I welcome you to the show, which is just talk about how the ATP has changed since those days and has the growth all been good? Well, certainly it's uh, it's grown since I joined the organization in 1981. Uh, at that time, it was the Players Association. We looked after strictly the players. Uh, we had two staff members on site at every tournament, myself, a tour manager, and a trainer, and uh, and that was the extent of it. But uh, in the ensuing decade, the players felt as if they needed to have a little bit more of a voice in running the sport. And so in 1990, um, certainly with the help of um, one of your compatriots on, on this podcast, Matt Villander, we started the ATP Tour. And... At that stage, we went from being the Players Association to running the tour with our partners, the tournament directors. And so then things started to grow immensely. Um, We were in charge of officiating. We were in charge of media relations, in addition to looking after the players. Johnny, uh, your relationship with Weller has come full circle because – when we talk about Weller doing what he was doing as an ATP tour manager back in the eighties, that was your heyday as a player. And now to watch him do what he does when you guys are working together with the Arizona tennis classic, how much more of an appreciation do you have for what those guys do and were doing back in those days uh, as a tournament organizer than you did uh, even as a, even as a player in your day? Well, I was, I might, might call myself a typical tennis player back in the 80s expecting everything to be taken care of and handled and not having a clue of what goes on behind the scenes and I'm sure that uh, I was a handful for Weller at times Um, I think now having been involved on the other side uh, which is running a tournament um, you know I understand you know just how difficult it is and and all the the different parts to, to make a tournament, you know, happen and be successful. And, and there's so much to it working with scheduling and operations and volunteers and, and working with the, you know, the ATP uh, administrators and the officials, it's just, it, the list goes on and on. And, and, and so I actually, uh, you know, got Weller, asked Weller if he'd be involved uh, to, to, to be the tournament director um, because I didn't have a clue and I think the fact that, you know, it's just really a two-year-old event and, and, and we've had such success is really a lot in part to, to having Weller, you know, run the, run the tournament for us. And, and from an operational standpoint, 
um, it's been very smooth. And, and I do really now understand, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. I thought you were going to say because of my intros and post-match interviews. Oh, well, <laughs> um, we, we talked earlier uh, in the month uh, with one of our shows about Nick Kyrgios now being the face of the sport of tennis, whether we like it or whether we don't. My question to you is, A, do you agree with that? And do you like it or do you not? Listen, I think that any player who draws eyeballs to the sport of professional tennis is good for the sport. Let's face it, we're a commercial venture, and it's important to get people to tune in, not just come to the events and have a fantastic experience on site, but to tune into the events. And Nick, again, as you say, whether some people like him or don't, is must-see TV. Now, can we count on Nick being there you know, for the long haul. Obviously, there's been some questions about that in the past, and only recently have we seen Nick making a commitment to the sport. I hope that commitment continues um, because, again, I think he's great for the sport. I think he brings people who normally wouldn't be watching tennis um, to uh, to our events and also gets them to turn the television on and tune in to tennis events on the ATP tour. But uh, it remains to be seen whether we can count on Nick making that commitment to the sport, um, you know, for the long haul. I hope we can. Johnny, as we go forward to year three of the Arizona tennis classic, Weller uses the word, the integrity of the event it really seems based on the on the feedback that you get from the players and from the officials and the people that attend the event that the integrity of the Arizona Tennis Classic is such that it plays more like an ATP event. And obviously, you're um, strategically located on the calendar during the second week of Indian Wells, and, and that's advantageous for you. But is it having Weller Evans running the show and Miguel Nito next to him and yourself that really brings this event to a level that is uh, above and beyond what most challengers are. And I know you're going to try to be humble about it, but isn't that the case? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, you'd like, you'd like to think so, but I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. And uh, obviously the organization is huge and having so many great volunteers is a big thing. But when you have the setting of the, of the club, the Phoenix country club, and um, the fact that they're so wonderful to work with and they make the players feel at home is a huge thing. And, um, you know, and then, you know, our sponsor base, and we've been fortunate to have a lot of great sponsors that have really gotten behind the the tournament and wanted to, to be a part of it. And um, I think their presence and their involvement is probably at the top of why it's successful and the club really is is the main thing i mean the setting at the phoenix country club and with the weather obviously being a key factor i think everything comes together for for really a great week and like you said you've got a lot of players that are on their way to miami they don't want to wait 10 12 days before they play another match and it fits perfectly into the you know on the way to miami and so um you know let's hope it continues and now, Weller, I'm going to put my my ignorance on on full display here and in all of its splendor when I ask you, 
what would it take or is it even possible uh, for the ATP to approach Johnny or vice versa to convert a tournament that continues to act like an ATP 250 and become an ATP 250? How does that process work? Well, it's a pretty exclusive club, the ATP Tour. Right. And until the last couple of years, uh, very difficult to, to join. You almost needed somebody to relinquish their membership in order to uh, be able to join the club. Now, in the last couple of years, because of the chaos of the pandemic, we've had to make some accommodations. And so what the ATP has done is issued one-year leases to certain events. I think you saw a new event in San Diego last year, which is actually going to return again this fall. And there are other examples of that um, across the calendar, especially this fall when we once again will be without our events in China. Once we get back to whatever the, the new normal is, again, it's going to be a rather exclusive club to join. And, um, you know, it would be something which certainly would be an option for those of us in Phoenix. Um, but quite honestly, I kind of like the intimate setting of the challenger that is held there at the Phoenix Country Club. As Johnny said, the venue is terrific. The city of Phoenix is great. The positioning in the calendar between Indian Wells and Miami um, affords us a tremendous field every year and it would be Johnny's call as to whether he'd even want to step up and and join the ATP tour at that level and with that level of commitment uh, and forego perhaps uh, a wonderful intimate setting that we have at the Phoenix Country Club. All right very good thank you very much Tom and Weller much appreciated. Now we're going to go to break, come back, and we're going to talk about what to expect. Who's the hot stick at the U.S. Open? Uh, we're going to talk about it. Who's going to win this thing? More on kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Thank you, Tom Fontana. Thank you, Weller Evans, for being a part of KickServeRadio.com by way of a KickServe quick serve with myself and Johnny. And now we're back, and it's time to preview the U.S. Open. We've been talking a lot of men's tennis, but let's talk women's tennis, and let's just call it like it is. Iga Svantec can't win a match, Mats. I mean, she may have won a round in, uh, in, in Cincinnati, but then she loses to Madison Keys. Uh, she's lost a couple in a row. I mean, I texted you while you were over at Wimbledon when she lost over there, and I said, is there something wrong with her, 
or was this just bound to happen eventually? And you said it was bound to happen eventually, but did you suspect that we would see this kind of slide or I'll ask again, is something wrong with her? Yeah, no, nothing is wrong with her for sure. I think that it's, it's a very natural reaction um, for someone who's 20 years old, who has a, a period when she's dominating the game for sure. Um, it's happened, happened to me when I was very young in 1983. I won, I won nine tournaments on tour and I wasn't dominating. I wasn't ranked number one, but I won a major. I made a finals of the French and then I had a reaction in 84 and it didn't last very long, but there was a couple of months, three months when I'm like, what is going on here? And I think it's just, you get, a, I think that you get a little bit overconfident. I don't think there's anything wrong with her. I think that, um, uh, Madison Keys, there's no shame in losing to Madison Keys. She hits the ball harder than than Iga. Um, and I think she'd be back. I really think she'd be a very dangerous at the US Open. I think the courts there are supposedly a little bit slower. Um, I spoke to Casper Rude today um, a, in a podcast for Eurosport, which is named Rude Talk. Uh, and we did about 45 minutes. And uh, he just got into Manhattan uh, or to New York, I should say, and he was out there and he practiced the afternoon and he said it's, a, it's quite a lot slower than Cincinnati. Of course, the, the, uh, the humidity and the uh, not as hot as Cincinnati makes the balls a little bit heavier. So I think this is going to suit Iga Swantik. So in the end, there's nothing wrong with her. I, I think she's on the right path. Well, I'm, I'm worried because uh, I think I should be the one doing the marketing for Casper Rude's podcast because I would have it air early in the morning and I would call it Rude Awakening. But that's just me. Johnny, this Serena Williams thing, here we go. This is it. We're coming down to the bitter end here. And I mean no disrespect when I say this, but can this thing end soon enough? (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry to say it. I don't mean it in a bad way. Well, can it end soon enough? Um, It's up to her. She's earned the right and the respect to go out the way she wants to go out, even though it's unfortunate to see um, what's happened to her the last couple months. I mean, Look, she's um, had a kid. She's older. It's not easy. You got to work just doubly hard uh, to stay in the shape that she was in as you age. Um, So I just think that the fitness piece of the equation is the biggest challenge for. Um, And that's a shame because I don't don't see her being fit enough uh, and moving well enough to compete at the highest level. And so this is what you're going to see. And unless that changes, I think it's going to be an early out, unfortunately, at the U.S. Open. Let's go back to the men's game, Matt, because we got to discuss what this hard court season means to who goes into the U.S. Open with the highest expectations. Tsitsipas gets a big win over Medvedev, just, and I call it a big win just because those guys are both – top fivers and they're guys that have high expectations with regard to conversations about major championships. But then Tsitsipas stubs his toe against the aforementioned Borna Chorich. We see Kyrgios lighten, you know, the house on fire um, and, and, and winning in, in Washington and us proclaiming him to some extent, the face of tennis. And he's lost a couple of matches since. So kind of where are we with regard to who is the hot stick going into, it's not Borna Chorich to win the U.S. Open. So who is it? Well, I still think that it's Daniel Medvedev, to be honest. I think Medvedev is the one that is the hardest to beat. Uh, I think he's the one that will neutralize pretty much anybody's game at some point. And then whether he wins or not, that's that's obviously 
sometimes it's down to very small margins. But I think he's, he is one that can neutralize someone like Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, I think in, in five sets, I would still put him as a favorite to beat someone like Stefano Tsitsipas. I mean, now it's 7-3 in head-to-head after Cincinnati. Uh, and just to mention Stefano Tsitsipas, I think it's tough for him to beat Medvedev in a, in a little bit of a, I guess you could call a bit of an upset in the semis of Cincinnati. And then you go in and play Borna Chorich. He had a long week, Tsitsipas. And I, I, I don't read anything into the fact that he lost in the finals to uh, Borna Chorich. Uh, Tsitsipas, but um, I think Medvedev is the hot player, not necessarily at the very moment, but when you enter into five sets at the US Open, I think he's the toughest to beat. And I think, which is never talked about, is when you are sitting in the locker room and you're going to go out and play Daniil Medvedev, I do think that that is most probably out of all the players in the locker room. That's the worst feeling that you're going to have before. And you are just dreading being out there for four or five hours with Medvedev, just like you're dreading playing a Rafa or a Novak Djokovic uh, or Andy Murray when he was at his best too. I think Medvedev has that kind of uh, aura around him in the locker room. And I think that he knows it. And I think that's the big difference. I think Medvedev has a lot of confidence. He's not going to win everything. That Those fireworks in Cincinnati really bothered him in that third set against Stefano Tsitsipas as well. So I think that it doesn't matter to him. So I don't know. Is there a hot player? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, Nick, Nick Curious was for a while, but I think Medvedev is the consistent player that is going to be the hardest to beat. All right. So Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Alcaraz, maybe Curious for the moment has hit, has hit the air brakes a little bit. Johnny, what about Fritz? What about Nori? What about Rude? Well, Nori has proven that he is one heck of a consistent tennis player. Um, he basically wins all the matches he's supposed to, and he loses most of his losses are to the top guys. Um, when you analyze Nori's game, a lot of people think, how is this guy top 10 in the world? I think he's sitting at nine right now. Right. I believe that Nori has a very, very underappreciated serve. He's got a heck of a lefty serve, and I think players are having a lot of problems with it. I think it's a big weapon for him, and um, I I was not sold on Nori, but after really honing in on his game and, and watching how he plays, he's definitely here to stay. Now, Rude uh, had that surprising loss to Ben Shelton, who we have to give a lot of credit to because – this young guy is hovering now in right around the top 200 in the world, and he just won the NCAAs, finished his sophomore season at Florida, and today he announced that he's turning pro. I think we have a lot to look forward to with Ben Shelton, but back to Christian Rude, uh, or I'm sorry, Casper Rude, Christian's his dad. Um, I believe that um, – he is. He has got a very good chance to do well on the hard course, but um, I don't think he'll get past the quarters. He might get to the quarters, uh, depending on the draw. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Cameron Nori, Matt's to to Johnny's point, closes out Alcaraz with an angle serve to the ad court that would have made John McEnroe proud to finish him off. So <laughs> he doesn't do it with power, but he does it with guile and moves it around and. To me, he doesn't seem like a guy that's got the firepower to win the U.S. Open. He does seem like a guy, to Johnny's point, that's going to beat 
all the guys that he's supposed to beat and maybe even a few that he's not supposed to beat and rarely lose to anybody that he shouldn't. But I don't know if that's what necessarily U.S. Open champions are made of. I think it's maybe what semifinalists are made of from time to time. Uh, So we will have to see. You'll be there covering this thing. You won it 34 years ago. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, you hate to to have to look back on it and think it's been that long, but when you turn 58, this is, this is the kind of thing you got to hear. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Let's just talk one more time just for the heck of it, just because we're going into the U S open. You walk out onto that court against Yvonne Lendl, who is in his, was it his eighth final of the decade already? The day you played him. I believe it was his, um, I believe it was his 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87. I think it was his seventh final oh, in a row. Lord. Yeah. What happens? Well, I do know this, and this is why I think Cam Norrie is going to be very difficult to beat. That year, the year before, too, I was, um, I was very strong physically. And I realized at the U.S. Open that that is overlooked at the U.S. Open because it's, it's the, the humidity sometimes is very high. It gets really hot. Then it gets really cold at night. Uh, and, and it's very difficult. And I'm sure, Johnny, I don't know what you think of it, but it's very difficult at the U.S. Open, more so than other tournaments, to find the sort of the tension in your racket and to find your rhythm in hitting the same shot daytime as the nighttime because it's a big difference between day and night at the u.s open uh so i think that you have when you have physical strength as one of your weapons which cam nori does you can always get out there and play the five sets and and fight your way through it and maybe you maybe you pull out a win and i think that uh that's what happened to in the u.s open to me for quite a few years that i had one good match then i had a really horrible match and then I survived that, and I played great the next day, then I played good for a little bit. So I think it's Levan Lendl is a, a very, very uh, special record at the U.S. Open, but he was so consistent. Uh, and I think that Cam Norrie, because you mentioned him before, the physical strength of Cam Norrie is overlooked. The serve is good, and his second shot after the serve is perfect. And I think that he is able to use his serve as a weapon. And that is exactly the same thing that I did, Andy, in 88. I was suddenly able to use my serve as a weapon, not to win three points, but to win the point after two or three shots because of the way that I set up the point. And I think that is the U.S. Open because it's it's tough. The fans are not necessarily that happy to see you if you're Matt Spielander or if you're Cam Norrie. They want to see flashy players. They want to see Carlos Alcaraz. They want to see themselves on the video screen, uh, maybe more than anything. And they want to listen to good music. They want to see Tiger Woods in the stands. Uh, uh, of course, in our day, Donald Trump used to sit in the, in the first or second row. Uh, there were always a lot of celebrities. So you got to really keep your focus at the U.S. Open. And one way to do that is to be physically strong, and just bite the bullet and just go hard every point because you will never play perfect tennis at the U.S. Open with everything that's going on, including, in our day, airplanes literally landing half a mile away or taking off from where we were playing. Words to live by, playing the U.S. Open from a man who won the U.S. Open, Matt Vlander. You've been listening to the former U.S. Open champion, Matt Vlander. Former U.S. Open third rounder, Johnny Levine, quarterfinalist in the doubles in 89. 
Great effort there, Johnny. No, you never get it right. What year it's was it, Johnny? 88, Andy. 88. 88. So you mean to tell me the year Matt's won the singles, you quartered the doubles? That's what you're telling Evidently, me. Evidently, yes. Evidently, yes. Okay, I stand corrected, <laughs> as I often do. All right. Well, you guys will be uh, in New York. And then once you escape New York, we will do another show. Yes. Have a great time, boys. And for those of you out there, fans of kickserveradio.com, we appreciate you. And we will be doing the best we can to keep you wanting to come back. Enjoy the hard court season. Enjoy the U.S. Open. And we will be talking at you real soon.